Well, by God's grace, we are, we've come to the end of our series in the book of James. Five chapters, ten sermons in all. Not too shabby, I say. And over the past week, I've been prayerfully reflecting on how the Lord has used this sermon series in my life. And I found myself praising and thanking God for his wisdom and his grace for including this letter in the canon of Scripture. What a gift the book of James is. What a practical, convicting, encouraging book. Uh, I've been a Christian for 25 years now, but this side of our James study, by God's grace, I'm looking at many areas of my Christian life uh, from a, a chastened, corrected perspective. And, and many of you have told me the same thing. I think of Isaiah 55, verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Loved ones, God's word never returns to him empty or void. Just think of what the Lord has accomplished, what he has desired for his people at New City and achieved through the faithful preaching of this book. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Faith without works is dead. We've also learned about not showing partiality in the church, the doctrine of justification, bridling our tongue, living by God's wisdom and not the standards of worldly, demonic wisdom. Something I found particularly convicting was James' warning about being friends with the world, being a spiritual adulteress in my marriage to a jealous husband as well as arrogantly boasting about tomorrow and not submitting my life to God's sovereign control and being impatient during suffering, not living my life in these latter days in light of Jesus' return. So while Jesus' name is only mentioned twice and there's no mention at all of our Lord's cross or resurrection, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the theological significance of the church, or the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. Even so, this series has been an immense blessing. And now, James closes his epistle with a series of direct exhortations, a series of direct appeals. But it's difficult to find one unifying theme throughout these closing verses. At least I found it difficult to find one. So I'm approaching our text today Um, The way I'm approaching it is as a closing summons to Christian action. And that's our sermon's title, a closing summons to Christian action. For the most part, James is focused on prayer. In verses 13 to 18, prayer is mentioned in every verse. But there's also an important thread of mutual accountability running throughout the passage. James is stressing that we live in accountable Christian community. And there comes with that eschatological reality certain responsibilities, certain privileges. The odd man out, however, is verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. This topic 
appears to be com- a completely independent unit of thought. Right? It's hard to see how it follows verse 11 or how it's connected with verse 13. But no matter, I am happy to preach an independent unit of thought if it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's jump in and see what sort of action our Lord is summoning us to as a church, New City. Summons number one. You can see this in your bulletin. Christian, speak and act with impeccable integrity in all you do. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. That is, you will fall under judgment. And we need to keep two things in mind here. First, when James says, above all, do not swear, he doesn't mean that taking an oath is worse than all other sins that he's mentioned in this letter. Sins like murder and adultery or worldliness. Uh, This is a transition phrase which signals James is entering now into the final section of his letter. So it's, it's more like, finally, brothers and sisters. Second, When James speaks of swearing in this verse, he's not referring to foul language. Uh, He's talking about invoking God's name or a substitute for God's name to guarantee the truth of what the Christian is saying. So, I swear to God, I never said that. James says for Christians, all we need to say is a simple yes or no which follows what our Lord Jesus taught very closely, doesn't it? Think of uh, Matthew 5.33 and following. I'll just read this to you. Matthew 5.33. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's what Jesus said. Now, one day, perhaps, you might find yourself uh, giving testimony in court. Uh, What will be required of you in that case is to take an oath, swearing that the evidence that you're presenting to the court is truthful. All right, then, then how should we respond in that moment? Should we conscientiously refuse? No, there's no need for that. Neither James nor Jesus is making a blanket prohibition on all oath-taking. We talked about this in our Christian ethics class a while back, but it can't be the case that it's a blanket statement for, no, you can't do this, because the Apostle Paul, he regularly swears Uh, by God's name. In particular, he calls God as his witness that certain things he writes are true. So, for instance, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. That's an oath. I call God as my witness. Uh, Even Jesus took an oath. Matthew 26, 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath By the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus responds affirmatively, you have said so. And the book of Hebrews stresses that even God made oaths and he swore by himself. Hebrews 6.13, when God made his promise to Abraham, 
Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, the oaths of Paul or the oath of Jesus that he took at his trial or what we might, the oath we might take in a witness box, they're all used to encourage truthfulness or to make truthfulness the more solemn and sure. But in the first century, Jews had built up an entire legalistic system given over to the question of oaths, including detailed consideration on when oaths were binding and when they were not. Uh, That is the context here. James is writing in a culture and to a people where certain oaths are non-binding. Oaths were just a justification for lying. They promoted deceit. So think of Matthew 23, 16. Jesus, he's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and he says this, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever swears by the gift on the altar is bound by an oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. That is the historical context uh, Jesus and his half-brother James are addressing. If you swear by this, you're not bound. If you swear by this, then you are bound. In that case, oaths are no longer fostering truthfulness. They're only promoting deceit. It's like a kid saying, oh, that doesn't count. My fingers were crossed. Right? But Jesus won't allow this among his followers. If, if people play these kinds of games with oaths, then Jesus will simply abolish oaths. And James teaches the same thing. A Christian's truthfulness should be so consistent and so dependable that we don't need an oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. Our mere word should be trustworthy as a, it should be as trustworthy as a signed document. When one spoke of a gentleman back in the day, Jill and I are watching uh, Pride and Prejudice right now, so this is When one spoke of a gentleman back in the day, one would say, his word is his bond, right? Just by giving his word, you could be assured the promise would be kept. Now, I know nothing about the NHL. Pastor Alex knows everything, and I care even less about the NHL. But I have this weird factoid in my brain because I watched a movie, a TV movie about Don Cherry, about his life a few years ago. So in 19, if you, if, you know, I, don't, I can't get into who Don Cherry is if you don't know, but just <laughs> in 1979, Don Cherry told the general manager of the Colorado Rockies that they were a know-nothing expansion team, um, that he would be their coach. Uh, he had just been canned from the Boston Bruins. Uh, the Rockies management and Cherry, they shook on the deal. It was a deal, right? And then the next day, an offer came in to Cherry for the Toronto Maple Leafs to be their coach. It killed him to do it, but Don Cherry turned that offer from the Leafs down. That was his dream job. 
Why did he turn it down? Because he had given his word. He had made a deal with the Rockies management. They shook on it. That's always stayed in my head. Brothers, sisters, your word needs to be trusted unquestionably. A Christian's word is their bond. It's linked with the integrity of our Christian witness. Christians claim to possess the truth and to follow him who is the truth. Therefore, we must be a truthful people. Yes, I will do that thing at that time. You can count on me. Which means we don't stoop to telling telling stories with a certain slant, either to make our point more emphatically or to present ourselves in a more glamorous light than the raw facts will actually allow. That's deceit. Uh, Nor do we say we will do something and instead renege on those responsibilities because it's personally inconvenient to go through with it. That's deceit. And I would also say, following Tim Challey, so I'll put the blame on him for this one, promptness, on timeness, is an application of Jesus' simple command that we're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Christian, if you say you will arrive at 8.30, then arrive at 8.30, not 9.00. Somehow, lateness has become culturally acceptable, excused away by busyness or traffic or the other trappings of our frantic lives. Uh, There are people who plan to be late and who are serially late. People who think so highly of themselves that they don't even attempt to get there on time and who don't care one bit how that inconveniences others. No, you're, you're not running late. You're rude and inconsiderate. New City, all who submit to the authority of Jesus cannot be too careful to speak the truth. We must speak and act with impeccable integrity in all that we do. Now, that may be an independent unit of thought there in verse 12, but it's certainly a good one. (laughs) And I trust God's word won't return to him empty. Let's move now to our second exhortation, the second summons. Christian, respond in prayer to all of life's circumstances. And of course, this is tied directly to the lesson we've already learned from James chapter 1, that Christians pray out of our understanding and knowledge of God. That's essential to understand. Our prayers are directly informed by our theological grasp of God, his ways, his perspective. Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. There's theology informing that outlook, isn't there? A response that comes from our understanding of who God is, our relationship to him, his sovereign power over the universe. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. That's to be our first response. Unfortunately, it's almost always the last. Not fear. Right? Not anxiety, not worry, not putting our head in the sand, not meditating, not despair, not thinking positive thoughts. Our first response is supposed to be prayer in times of trouble. And as we've already learned, the prayer offered up to God in the midst of difficult circumstances isn't necessarily for deliverance from that trial, but for the wisdom to endure it faithfully with a, with a God-given wisdom that we might count it all joy free from doubting God's good character and with a divine perspective on history. 
Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And, and songs of praise offered up to God are a form of prayer, giving regular praise to God. That's to be part of a Christian's prayer life. When life is smooth and free from problems, when our, our hearts are comforted, it's all too easy to forget that this contentment ultimately comes from God. And so believers thank God. We praise God. That's our proper response to his grace. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And this prayer theme continues into verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So there we have it. What's to be the Christian's response to serious illness? Not despair, not bitterness, not grumbling, not complaint. We're not second-guessing the sovereign providence of our good God. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Now, since the elders are summoned, quote-unquote, to this sick person, and they pray over them, which sounds like the person is flat on their backs we can assume this illness is quite serious. This isn't a case of the sniffles. <laughs> I'm not sure how I'd respond. I've got a cold, John. Come over here and anoint me with oil and pray. Um, physically speaking, this person is in a bad way, all right? And they've summoned the spiritual leaders of the local assembly to pray for them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's probably the part of the verse that we are prone to zero in on, Right? Uh, elders praying for sick church members. So that's all well and good. Um, we're happy to do that. We just did that a little while ago with one of our brothers in the hospital. But anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord, that sounds a little bit weird. Well, its background is found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, anointing has a religiously symbolic purpose. It frequently symbolizes the setting apart or the consecration of persons or things for service to God. For example, and this is just one of many, Exodus 28:39, where God instructs Moses on the fashioning of the priestly garments. We read this, weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them. That means set them apart from the rest of the community so they may serve me as priests. Which means anointing a sick person with oil in the name of the Lord is not medicinal. It's not magical. It's a physical action with symbolic significance finding its roots in the Old Testament. Hear me. The elders are anointing the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord in order to vividly show how that person is being set apart for God's special attention in prayer. And this isn't just a first century Jewish practice. It's something many churches practice today. James tells us the elders should do it. So it seems to make sense that it has permanent validity 
It's not just a first century thing. And beloved, the elders of New City Baptist Church are happy. We are willing to do this for you. On the other hand, the fact that anointing a sick person is only mentioned here in the New Testament. And that many healings in the New Testament were accomplished without anointing shows that the practice is not a necessary accompaniment to the prayer for healing. Elders who pray for the sick may anoint with oil, and James recommends the practice, but they don't have to. But as we're trying to understand this text, we need to be careful. This practice of anointing with oil attracts a good deal of our curious attention, I think, and we forget that James' primary concern is prayer. James ascribes the anticipated healing to the prayer of the elders, not the anointing with oil. And notice the prayer that makes the person well is a strictly qualified prayer. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. And of course, this verse is often linked with James chapter 1, Verse six, verses 6 and 7. And there is a connection, New City, uh, but it's often improperly made and in a way that causes tremendous spiritual damage and emotional hurt. Just slip back to chapter 1, verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. All right, then, how are we to understand James 5.15? And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. So imagine for a moment that you have a, you're suffering from a serious disease and your desire is to be healed. You want to be obedient to James chapter 5, verse 14. So you call the elders of the church. You call Alex and myself. You call us to your sick bed to pray for you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Here's the question. If your elders have a sufficient quantity of faith, will you infallibly be healed from your disease? What I'm asking is, are we permitted to apply verse 15 in an absolute sense? Is that promise a blank check from God that Christians can cash at any time as long as the necessary faith is there? Because if we read verse 15, coupled as it usually is with James 1, 6, and 7, if we read those verses along the interpretive lines of much of evangelicalism today, we might understand James to be saying something like this. Perhaps you've heard this. Christian, be sure that when your elders pray to God for your healing, those men have a sufficient, acceptable quantity of pure undefiled faith because if god says no to their prayer if they pray for you and anoint you with oil in the name of the lord and you are not made well if you're not raised up well then it's proof positive that the quality and or quantity of your elders faith or or your faith is lacking it's faith mixed with doubt both the praying elders and you the afflicted christian must not doubt that you will receive the healing that you are asking for from God. That sort of teaching is very common in the church today. Dozens and dozens of churches in this city preach that very thing. Whole continents are awash with that false doctrine, and it has devastating results. 
Now the sick person has a twofold burden. Their illness and the assumption that their, el- their church elders are spiritual pygmies who don't have sufficient faith to claim this blank check promise from Scripture. But the text is plain. This prayer that heals does have a major qualification. It's the prayer offered in faith that brings healing. But the mistake many make is understanding faith to be a qualitative, quantitative substance. As in, I have, <clears throat> I have 10 pounds of undefiled faith to offer up to God. There isn't the least particle of doubt in my faith. Therefore, God will certainly take this faith offering and he will answer my prayer. He will heal me. The Lord will raise me up. No. This faith isn't a specific quantity or level of purity or a degree of energy God requires of us before he will act. This faith is a continuing confidence in the character of God, his identity and his nature. The thrice holy, good God, the God of the Bible. The God who sovereignly accomplishes his perfect will, not some genie in a bottle, that we can domesticate. James is writing here about faith's object. The one in whom our faith is placed. God himself. And if that's not understood, if that's not our prayer foundation, Christian, then any sort of prayer edifice that we attempt to build upon it will crumble. God may answer the prayer of the elders and heal you and raise you up off of your sickbed. But in the final analysis, God is good. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. And God is sovereign. And his sovereign will reigns supreme. As we were singing this morning. You were singing that very thing. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we have difficulty reconciling ourselves to the sovereign wisdom of God in the midst of our physical affliction, then, brothers and sisters, we know what to do. We need to go back and preach James 1.5 to our heart. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, truth be told... Christians are often just so preoccupied with the anointing oil and the the quality or the quantity of faith that God requires to be healed of all of our infirmities that we fail to notice the overall context of this discussion. James is writing of healing from disease and praying to God in faith in the context of confessing sin to the church. Did you notice that? And and this now is James' third summons to Christian action. Summons number three in your bulletin. Christian, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is proper Christian accountability. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
So do you see? James is drawing a connection between sin and bodily illness. But at this point, we need to proceed with caution. There's just been so many bad, bad mistakes, I think, made with this text in the church at large. I, just, I need to take time to correct this because it's, it's just devastating. And we need to remember last week's sermon. We saw in the case of Job that it's not always possible to draw a direct line of relationship between illness and sin, right? Uh, Job was a righteous man. No one in the whole earth was like Job, and yet he suffered terribly. Or consider the man born blind in John 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Nevertheless, the New Testament informs us that some illnesses are, in fact, the product of sin. There can, there can be a relationship between sin and illness. Do you remember what Jesus says to the invalid in John 5:14 after he heals him? See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Or think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5:1 to 11. They died as a result of their sin. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 11:30 regarding the Lord's Supper. The apostle Paul writes this, Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick. James 2 recognizes the possible connection, the possible connection between sin and illness. And so he encourages the sick person to first deal with any potential spiritual causes of the illness that they're experiencing. If they have sinned, he writes, they will be forgiven. And that if is very important. It shows James by no means assumes the sickness is caused by sin, but it is possible. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Specifically, confess those sins which may have caused your illness. Because there certainly are illnesses and deaths that are the consequence of sinful lifestyle choices and sinful acts of behavior. It doesn't have to be uh, a supernatural judicial sentence like it was in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. It can be the natural outworking of cause and effect under God's providence. What do you think? How many people are ill in this world as a direct result of suppressed hatred and anger and jealousy, and bitterness, and fear, and guilt. How many illnesses are related to stress and anxiety? How many people are ill because of alcohol and drug abuse, or sexual immorality? How many illnesses are related to the unabashed, workaholic pursuit of wealth? How many illnesses and deaths are the result of gluttony? Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other. That is, confess any sins which may hinder your physical healing and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Verse 17, 
So there's a logical order, New City, in the command from verse 16. The ill Christian confesses their sin to the church, that sin which may be hindering their physical healing, and then the entire church, not just the elders, as in verse 14, the entire church prays for their physical healing. This is part of our Christian accountability, New City. We all have this privilege. We all have this responsibility. All the members of this church took a covenant together, an oath before each other and God. And part of that covenant promise reads as follows. I engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters, in brotherly love, to remember you in prayer, to aid you in sickness and distress. And this is one of the ways that we do that. What we're reading here in James. One of these days, we're going to be diagnosed, each of us, with a serious illness. And it might be a Canadian thing, I don't know, but with a serious medical illness comes a desire, understandably, I think, but I'm saying as a Canadian, uh, for privacy. But let your pastors counsel you, not total privacy. Let your church family pray for your bowel cancer diagnosis. Let your church family pray for your depression. Let your church family pray for your CAT scan. Pray for each other that you may be healed. We're living out our lives in these latter days together. No member of this church is an island. There are no Lone Ranger Christians who are members here. We all have a responsibility to each other and for each other. Christians are a praying people. That means praying with Christians and praying for Christians. A healthy church prays together. Which is why verse 16 concludes with a reminder of the great power of prayer. 16b, the, pra- the, pa- the prayer of a righteous person, that is, the believer who is righteous by virtue of receiving forgiveness through Jesus. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, which means possessing power in prayer is not the sole preserve of the super saint. Right? Look at verse 17. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. See, that kind of power is available to all of us, all who are sincerely following the Lord Jesus, and not just a special few. Elijah was a human being even as we are, and look at the power of his prayers. Look at what God accomplished through his prayers. Read 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 again sometime soon. Elijah prays, and there's a three and a half year drought on the land. He prays again, and the heaven gives forth its rain and earth produces its crops. <clears throat> New City Baptist Church is not a health and wealth church. That's a false gospel. It's a false gospel right from the pit of hell. Christians are not guaranteed good health during their pilgrimage in this fallen world. And anyone who tells you different is just looking for your money. Look out. But as a church, 
As a church, we don't want to calibrate our position on healing too far to the other side of the spectrum either. That is, denying the grace of God to heal his people through the awesome power of corporate prayer. So let me ask you, brother, sister, in conformity with this text, (coughs) are you a member of New City Baptist Church? And are you seriously ill? then Alex and I both would encourage you to summon your elders to pray over you and to anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith, a faith that has a continuing confidence in the identity and nature of God, the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will, will make you well. The Lord will raise you up. But is there sin in your life that needs to be confessed and repented of? Sin that very well may be hindering your physical healing. If you have sinned, you will be forgiven. So confess your sin, and our church family will pray for you so that you may be healed. Remember what happened in the case of Elijah. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is proper Christian accountability. Finally, and very quickly, James' fourth summons to Christian action. Again, touching on the theme of Christian accountability. Christian, intervene in the lives of fellow believers who are sinning. This is proper Christian accountability. I entitled our sermon... A closing summons to Christian action. I did that because when we read the closing verses of a number of New Testament letters, we often read blessings, don't we? Uh, Grace and peace be with all of you. May God be with your spirit. Not trivial things, certainly. Those are glorious truths that are wrapped up in the gospel. But James doesn't end his letter with a benediction. In what is arguably the most practical book in the whole canon, the epistle perhaps most concerned with Christian actions. Even James' last verses are devoted to Christian actions. His theme never changes, not even for his conclusion. In verse 19, James describes a hypothetical situation, but unfortunately is a situation that's quite common. A member of the church, a person who at least outwardly is identified with the Christian community, is wandering from the truth of the gospel. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the way of error will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Look at what happened between verses 19 and 20. Someone is wandering from the truth of the gospel, but through the efforts of another member of the church, because one person felt accountable to look out for and to guard and to love their brother or sister in Christ, this person is brought back to the truth. They are reclaimed from the path of error. Heaven is gained. Hell is avoided. Error is destroyed. Truth is vindicated. Justification, not condemnation. What this person has done by turning their brother or their sister from error is save them from spiritual death and covered over a multitude of their sins, covered over by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. All because of accountable 
Christian community. Brothers and sisters, I want us to let that sink down deep. Meaningful membership. Accountable Christian community. If you're content to just pop in here on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half and then leave, forget it. Christian community is next to worthless if it's not accountable Christian community. Every member here is accountable to and for every other member of this church. There are no lone rangers. No Christian is an island. That brother or sister sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, he or she is an essential part of the same body of which you are a part. So we aren't being meddlesome when we humbly come alongside our brother or our sister who is wandering from the truth, wandering along the path of sin, and we give correction or a loving rebuke. Or when the church disciplines them in an effort to seek their restoration. This isn't meddlesome behavior. Because there is indeed a place of eternal death. And the path of unrepentant sin will surely lead us there. Our membership at New City, our membership covenant, that shapes obviously our relationships with all the other members. Biblically speaking, that shapes how we view ourselves and our needs, as well as the needs of all the other members. And being a faithful, healthy church member with a healthy biblical outlook on my own needs will mean that I recognize I am spiritually needy. I have problems. I'm a sinner in process. And so I need the help of my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We all need each other because we're all needy. In fact, my godliness is a community project, and you need to be involved in it. Your godliness, Mary Jo, is a community project, and I need to be involved in it, as does Victoria and Jill and Alex and Andrew. Every Christian needs other Christians in their life in order to grow in grace. We need to see our church relationships as being redemptive, as a means of serving others which then frees us all up to speak the truth to each other in love. This is how it works. New City, by God's grace, may we heed James's closing summons to Christian action. May we speak and act with impeccable integrity in all we do. May we respond in prayer to all of life's circumstances. May we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other that we may be healed living lives of Christian accountability. And may we intervene in the lives of our brothers and sisters who are sinning. This is proper Christian accountability. Amen.